I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Uh, I currently live in Rancho Palos Verdes. Okay. Uh, so are you familiar with, uh, with that region? Uh, I lived in San Francisco and I was down in LA. I'm assuming it was, is that South? Uh, yeah, it's South Bay. It's uh, one of the most wealthy suburbs of Los Angeles. So it's like, it's always been looked at as like Palos Verdes, Beverly Hills, Malibu. Gotcha. Are, you know, so we're up on the hill. It's a coastal area. Uh, so uh, very different from where I grew up. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> when neighbors also, when they ask me where I grew up, where I came from, uh, it's a little shocking to them as far as where I grew up and where I ended up now. Uh, it, they, they don't, sometimes they don't see the connection. Uh, if I think if you follow the trajectory, yes, you can see the connection. But if if you're just not used to having neighbors that came from these, uh, you know, very uh, marginalized communities, I think it, it is a little like, hey, well, how did this come about? Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Rider Jam podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. We are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker today, and uh, I'm going to tell you, man, putting this show on is hard. It's just me here in the bunker. When Max was around, he was a dog, so he didn't do a whole lot of work. And there are times it gets a little overwhelming because I have a day job, running a university press, lots of things going on outside. I don't get to write or edit as much as I used to. And there are moments when I think, I don't, I don't know, man, like it's just a lot of work to do this. Even though I love talking to writers, even though I love all of this, 
I love chatting with people. Um, I love hearing their stories. It's just so interesting. But I'm human, and there are just days that it feels too much. And I've been feeling that for the last few weeks. And right before I took a little break, you don't know because we've had shows, uh, I wasn't sure. Like, I just wasn't sure where I was mentally. And this interview you're going to hear today was the last interview that I did before I took a few days off, about 10 days off from interviewing folks. And I just re-listened to it. And I've been looking forward to re-listening to it since I had that conversation. And it's just been in the back of my head. And I thought, Buck, this is why I do this. Like, this is, this kind of conversation is why I do this and why I enjoy doing it. On the program today is Rodrigo Rivera Debra. He's a filmmaker. He's a writer. His new book is The Displaced. And it was one of those conversations that an hour went by and I looked up and I was like, holy shit, an hour just went by. I think you're going to feel that way, too. So he's a writer and director. He did an award-winning documentary called Dark Progressivism, uh, an urban studies film that follows the trajectory and impact of Los Angeles gang graffiti murals and tattoo art. He wrote Urban Politics, the Political Culture of Sir 13 Gangs. He has an MFA in creative writing. His work has been featured in the L.A. Review of Books, Design L.A. Magazine, Joyland, other places. He writes for the Huffington Post. He lives in Los Angeles. And all that is a bio. And it doesn't even begin to capture how fucking interesting this dude is, man. And if you listen to the program, you also know, like, I don't always interview a lot of guys. There's no reason that happens. There's some reason that happens. But I'm very particular about the kinds of people that I interview. And... I really wanted to talk to him. I didn't know anything about him before this, which is not uncommon on this show. I do very little research and I read a lot, but it's impossible to read everything. But this is one of those conversations like I had with Sergio Troncoso, uh, that I had with Osho, um, that I've just had with some guys on the program. Uh, it's a little bit like the conversation I had with Nina Aaron, uh, Nina Aaron um, Renton. And that there's just a lot of things that I see because of my own personal experiences. And I think if you listen to this along the way, there becomes these very distinct benchmarks where it was clear we had things in common. And I love that. Man, I fucking love that about humanity. That if you sit down and talk with people and you're earnest and interested and you care and you listen that you begin to find these Venn diagrams. They're not always the same. They don't always cross over. They oftentimes have different lenses to them. If you listen to the program, you hear me use those words all the time. But I fundamentally believe it, that if you do that, you find these places where magic happens. And I'm telling you, the second half of this interview is maybe the most fun I've ever had on an interview. I love the whole thing. Don't get me wrong. I loved every second of this. But I think you're going to like it as well. Uh, if you listen, you know, this is the time where I run off all the business that we have. We're not going to do that today. If you don't listen to the program, just know we have three programs. They're all on this channel. Leave us a review over at Apple Podcasts or the Writer's Jam Facebook page. 
You can head over to our website, theridersjam.com. Bunch of shit to do over there, book reviews, things like that. You can support the whole Solid Listen podcast network with the Patreon. All of that. But really what I want you guys to do, and I appreciate you joining me today on the program. I always appreciate you joining me. I appreciate you taking some time. I think this is going to be an hour well worth your time. And I hope that you will really sit back and enjoy my conversation with Rodrigo Rivera Deborah. Uh, so I grew up by the LAX airport okay. uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, so it's a community called Lenox. Uh, my parents are originally from Mexico. Uh, they were immigrants, uh, legalized immigrants around the Reagan era. So, yeah. That's, and you uh, have brothers and sisters? I have two brothers and a sister. Uh, my sister lives in Bakersfield. My two brothers I'm um, estranged from... Uh, that's another story. That's a story that I'm working on now. But uh, when my father passed away, uh, a lot of things came came out that are like not dirty laundry, I would say, but just like family conflicts. Uh, and so, you know, that's that's the next uh, story that I'm working on. Like partially influenced by my life. Yeah, my father just passed away and, and uh, it brought up a lot of stuff. So I have some understanding of yeah. How those stories like that happens and you're like, oh, shit, the dam just broke. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's another, I guess, in, a, in another way, it's, uh, you know, this novel that we're, that's just coming out, it was influenced by Camus, uh, his novel, The Plague. But this next story was influenced by his story, The Stranger, because I, I don't know if you're familiar with how that book starts or anything about that book. But uh, he basically, the character goes on trial for his cold exterior. Uh, because he responds to his mother's death in a way that's not accepted by society. So when my father passed away, at the time I was actually on vacation and my family expected me to drop everything and come home. Uh, so that was a little, that led to just, uh, I guess, other culture reactions until a friend of mine said, wow, you're like a real life, uh, like the, that main character from uh, Camus the stranger and I thought it's interesting let me explore that a little bit further and the more I started thinking about it the more I saw some commonalities between my behavior and just uh, people's expectations of what or how you're supposed to respond after the death of a parent yeah so were you guys all close when you were younger or were you has it been a long time like what was the relationship like with your sister and you guys uh, my sister and I had a really close relationship when we were young. We're still closer now, but she lives pretty far away, uh, a few hours away, you know, so it's not. Uh, but I, I, I do still talk to her regularly. My brothers and I never had the closest relationship. So it's not this is not surprising that, yeah. like you said, the dam would break at this point. <laughs> yeah. you know, so uh, like were you, where were you in the four of them? I'm the, I'm the youngest. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So we got that in common, too. Okay. <laughs> baby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and was your sister the one, was she the oldest? No, she's the next in line. Okay. So you, so you guys were just like, how, how, what's the distance there? Just two years. Okay. So you and, guys sort of grew up together. Yeah. And the, and the reason I would say that I had the closer relationship to her also is because 
I like doing the things that her and my mom used to do, like shopping, right? I love just going to the grocery store. I loved going to like JCPenney and the mall and that sort of thing, getting new toys, getting new clothes. <laughs> and my dad and my two older brothers were into the traditional, like at the time, gender roles for men, right? So they liked working on cars. They liked doing like the um, like uh, cutting grass and so forth. I wasn't into any of those things. I didn't like the manual labor type stuff. And so I, uh, I was reprimanded a lot for my choices and was uh, often called, you know, a girl or a sissy or a faggot, you know, that sort of thing by my father. So a lot of those things led to like uh, this difficult relationship with my father that started at a very young age. Yeah. So what kind of like, I know you just sort of said, but like, what kind of kid were you outside of that? Like, were you like a school kid or were you like to keep to yourself? Like, what did you do? Who were you as a kid? Sure. Yeah. I actually had a lot of friends growing up as a kid. Uh, I also was probably the best student in elementary school. I won uh, certificates every single month for citizen of the month. And I had a trophy every year for citizen of the year. And at an early age, my teachers had always recommended that I go to college and study journalism and that writing was my, my thing. My parents were not interested in that at all. So they discouraged it yeah. and they wanted me to be an athlete. They liked oh, really? soccer. Yeah, they were into the soccer thing. My dad had uh, two brothers that were professional athletes. They played soccer. Uh, they got scholarships to university and so forth. So he wanted me to follow in their footsteps. Uh, so he put a lot of pressure on me to do that and reject anything else that I was interested in. So he would always tell me, your dream for me is to be on the U.S. national soccer team. I said, well, that's a lot of responsibility because I don't share that same view. Yeah. And, and that's so, not a, that, you know, there's only 23. Right. So it's like, that's, that's what I'm saying. There's a lot of responsibility yeah. for, for that. And so when my friends were out, you know, wanting to ride bikes or do sleepovers or just like after school, just to hang out, he wouldn't let me often because uh, he wanted me to play soccer. He wanted me to practice. It was like, all a few hours of practice every day and then like the games on Saturdays. So it was just like a nonstop schedule of just athleticism that really just uh, at at some point I just rebelled against it because it became tedious for me and I just didn't want to do it anymore. Uh, And and often I didn't want to do it just to spite him, not because I wasn't enjoying it anymore because I just didn't want to do what he wanted me to do. Yeah. So did you find some like respite at school? Like if you were a good student, like, did you try to hang out there? Is that what you were doing? Uh, I took a turn for the worse is what I did. <laughs> so after we you know when I, when I got to, um, when I got to middle school, you know, I was still, I was still like doing like, I was still a good student. I was still hanging out, but I was making a lot more friends, uh, you know, hanging out with like the popular kids and often the popular kids are dismissive of school right so like the at least where i grew up uh, so they they didn't it, it was a lot of like hey let's do this on the side let's you know we started getting into the graffiti stuff and ditching and when i got to high school you know i, I followed that route so yeah. i got into some trouble in <laughs> high school uh and that was like my full-on rebellious stage against my parents and it was a straight revolt against everything that they i had been let's say suppressing like as a, as a kid growing up, you look so, back on that though. And you're like, well, that makes sense. Right. Like, of course that's what I did. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I don't blame anybody but myself for it or my choices. Uh, I made a lot of uh, terrible choices because I was weak and I wasn't as strong and determined to like maintain what I really wanted, what I really was supposed to be, which is like, if I followed the route of what um, my teachers had saw in me at a young age, you know, I would have just stayed in school and I would have focused on like the literary thing and the creative side, but I chose to go the other route and get involved in uh, the drugs, the gangs and the graffiti stuff. Yeah. But yeah. some of that, I mean, not again, we have some things in common that, you know, they're in different sort of realms, but like I had the drugs and the selling and the stuff like that. And, you know, I look back on that and some of that, it, yeah, it's decisions that you make, but also there are those other forces that are around you that are not allowing you to do the thing that you want because you're a kid. You don't have agency, right? Like you're not able to be like, I'm 12. This is what I'm going <laughs> to do, right? Like that's not a thing. Yeah. Like, do you think back and give yourself some grace with that? I do. I do now. For a long time, it was hard. Like yeah. immediately after yeah. when I transitioned from that world and started going to college, I look back at that part of my life with like this sense of disgust yeah. and I would never talk about it. I never brought it up. You know, I would always tell people, I even, I even would lie about like where I grew up sometimes and like just kind of leave a whole portion of my life out of my trajectory Sure. Uh, until the end of college. A friend of mine uh, influenced me to really own up to that uh, and just say, hey, you know, that is a part of your life because uh, up here in Southern California, uh, when uh, some friends in college would say, uh, talk about their friends at Berkeley or Stanford, all universities in Northern California, they would say, do you have friends up North in college as well? And I would say, yeah, friends up north, but in my mind, I would say they're in Pelican Bay and Corcoran, yeah. you know, and all these different prisons up north. <laughs> but I would, you know, that's the way that I would look at it. Uh, but yeah, then at some point, once I started to accept it, it became more of like, yeah, that's my story. This is who I am. This is a reality. And I'm okay with talking about it now and analyzing it. And like you said, yes, I do give myself some grace, some flexibility with, you know, the choices, uh, the neighborhood that I grew up in. The, the surroundings, the the friends, like a lot of that peer pressure is very hard to resist. Well, also. particularly if you have a, a, you know, and I don't want to shit on your dad, but like particularly if you have a father that's not providing you, like isn't giving you a safe space, but it's telling you this is the thing you're going to do. And I don't care what's going on. Yeah. Right. Like even if, you know, if you the peer pressure, yeah, it hits you, but it hits you more when you don't have that place where you actually feel like you can find yourself. Right, right, right. Exactly. Like that, that's a good point because I couldn't be myself uh, at home because of what my father rejected. And then when I was with friends, uh, I was like doing the rapping thing or like writing poetry. And that was accepted with my friends because they would say, hey, man, write me this poem for this yeah. girl. You know, <laughs> so I would do that or like I'd started writing rap music. And so people would say like, oh, man, bust a rap or like, let's rap together. And so I still found my I still found a comfort with friends outside of the house, like you said, because uh, at least the creativity was there and the writing was still there. Yeah. And I always, you know, whenever I have these kinds of conversations and again, like there's a Venn diagram, it's, we have different backgrounds, but there's some things that cross. It's like, yeah, nobody ends up there because they were seven and were like, well, this, I want to end up in this part of the world. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's not a, that's not a dream that you have as a kid that happens because of things before that. And it's both important, I think, to take responsibility, but also to be like, I mean, but also 
you know, if you're in the ocean, you're going to go where the tide is. And it's really hard to swim against that. Right, right, right. So you get the height. So um, when you're like in that middle school, high school, like when you start rebelling, like what does that look like? Um, let me see. Um, I guess it's incremental. Uh, it was incremental. My sister, uh, since I've mentioned earlier, she was uh, the closest sibling that I had. She got involved in gangs and like the graffiti stuff. So naturally I was really influenced by what she was doing. And, you know, she had the cool boyfriends and uh, they dressed nice and clean. And they had this certain kind of allure to them that was like, oh, this is a little magical, you know, like yeah. the cars that they had, uh, the respect that people gave them. So I, I kind of crave that. Right. So at that time in middle school, we were messing around just with like skateboards, uh, BMX, biking, staying out later you know get into some trouble you know nothing too serious but like kid like, stuff yeah you know like uh dirt rock fights or like yeah. vandalizing abandoned buildings yeah you know like that sort of thing setting uh, little things on fire you know yeah. whatever yeah i do uh, know all of that yeah <laughs> yeah you know so then it got to high school and it was like oh this is a on a much different level because it was a lot more kids you sure. know from different places a lot more experience uh, going to school with, with people that are a lot older than you. And then uh, some friends started coming around uh, that were friends of friends in high school, but they were like already out of high school. So they were about six years, seven years older than me. Uh, and they wanted to hang out with me and they kind of took me under their wing. And I thought, wow, what are these like? I mean, I think about it now. I probably didn't think about it then so much, but yeah. you know, you have these, these kids that are not kids, these adults, that are already 19, 20, you know, 21 years old, and you're just a freshman in high school and thinking like, these people want to hang out with me. Like, that's cool. So you, you can definitely like move in that direction and, and feel that safe space with these people. Yeah. And, and a lot of it was like fighting at first. There was a lot of high school riots, you know, race riots is what we referred to back here. When, and, uh, and, what year was this? uh like 91 92 so this is sort of in the height of like the yeah all of that shit out yeah yeah you know america so was having the, one of its reckonings <laughs> right exactly yeah. you know, and 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 we we participated in that reckoning yeah. reckoning like during the 92 riots we were out there on the streets uh but in school it was fighting with these people of uh, op opposite races and yeah. so forth just just like there was no particular thing that anybody did to anybody it was just that was that was part of the 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 culture at the time yeah and you know you participated in it and with these older guys i felt comfortable with because you felt like they would take care of you they would protect you uh and if you were and if you showed how how courageous you were amongst them then you know there was even more protection yeah. so and, and an example of that is i got shot in my leg in 1992 uh, so for a few days at school, I was walking around with the cane and these older guys that didn't go to the school would come and pick me up. Uh, and everybody at school was like, man, that's so cool. Like these guys come to pick you up from school. And it was never talked about. It was never like, hey, man, you guys should come pick me up because I can't walk so good. Like they just happened to show up when I would get out of school and they, you know, make sure that I wasn't uh, getting getting beaten up or something like that because I had the vulnerability of walking with the cane for yeah. you know a little bit so 
like if you can put yourself in your kid head at that point like did you have mo because i know in my dark periods i'd have moments where i'm like how the fuck did i end up here like this is not where, what i thought like did you have those back then or or, or at the time you're just like yeah this is this is me uh definitely uh, i was like this is me this is where i'm headed this was the getting shot was a rite of passage uh and if you grew up in this kind of areas where we grew up yeah getting shot going to jail uh that sort of thing was very commonplace it was a rite of passage so me getting shot like at 14 years old pretty early on as a teenager was like it was also looked at as with awe and i also i wore it with like a badge of honor like yeah i already look at me i already got shot i just started like doing all this stuff and being like this rebellious kid and i've already gotten shot you know you haven't gotten shot so where's your where's your scar you know that sort of thing so i wore it well like i was just like yeah this is me i saw myself moving in that direction and and i i I liked how it felt being in that world where um, you got a lot of attention, you know, not only from like friends and peers, but also like girls at the time. Uh, before that, I was a shyer kid that I wouldn't really talk to girls as much. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's just a lot more attention <laughs> on, on you. You're like, yeah, this is, I like the way it feels, you know, I like that feeling of popularity. Yeah. Did you have, cause you said the teachers at the time were like, Hey, you should write, you should do that. Were there, was there anybody around that was like, hey, man, let's uh, let's talk about maybe another direction? Uh, no, not when I got to high school, because I think when I got to high school, I had already like uh, maybe gone. Yeah, I had already broken away from what the teachers, any teachers that knew me from elementary school and middle school. Like once I got to high school, it was just like I was a fresh face for them. and just like uh, another thug or punk yeah. or just like whatever, like. It, you know, they didn't know who I was prior to that. So yeah. that's what they had to work with, which is understandable also. It is. Was it a big school? Oh, uh, yeah, it's relatively big. Yeah. yeah. So you become one of like I taught very briefly in a school that had like 3000 kids and like, you know, it's really hard to have any sort of ongoing relationship because there's so many kids in that school it's four stories they were sort of all over the place and you try but like see i'm assuming it was easy to be anonymous and kind of do whatever you wanted without fear of watchful eyes around you yeah 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 definitely and because there was so many people doing it, a collective consciousness it was yeah. like yeah you could blend into this world and nobody really cared uh even at the time like my mom would see uh me and my sister ditching sometimes like walking around the streets around school and she would give us rides, you know, and it was like not an issue for her, for us. We, we would just lie very easily like, oh, yeah, they let us out early today. And she's like, oh, I'll give you guys a ride to the hangout spot. And then she would go and work or do her thing, whatever she was doing. So there were there weren't a lot of repercussions at the time for us, like cutting class and doing all the other like dumb stuff that you do when you're <laughs> yeah. a teenager, you know? Yeah, uh, a teenager with no restrictions, right? Like with yeah. no and, you know, again, it was a different sort of thing. But, you know, in my small town, like same thing, like you could you could do whatever you wanted to do. And as they, there was just no guardrails for what we were doing. Um, yeah, there was a sense of licentiousness. And we knew people who had gone to like a camp, like jail camp uh, or kids that were minds that were teenagers that had gone to these types of camps uh, when you because you're not quite an adult yet. Right. So you can't yeah. go to the. The jails uh like adult jails but uh they would do like a serious crime like stab somebody or shoot somebody 
and they would be back home like in four or five months, you know, six months. And you'd think, oh, oh yeah, no big deal. Like if I get caught for a crime, like I'm going to be back here pretty soon anyway. And then, you know, you carry a new kind of respect, you know, for yeah. doing that as well. So it's like, there's, you see all this around you and the licentiousness uh, without the, so many limitations to uh, what you can get into. And so it, it becomes just like this. Yeah, well, and particularly in America, right, where it's like, it, you know, if you're brown or black or if you're, you know, if you're not white, like then there's all those other expectations, too, which I'm assuming was just like, well, just we're going to leave the we're going to leave that group over there and let them do whatever they do. Right. Like there wasn't I'm assuming there wasn't a great deal of intervention that was happening, like, hey, we should come in and try to make these situations better. Well, coincidentally, I want to throw something out there that yeah. a lot of those friends especially the ones that I told you that were older than me, uh, they were white. Really? Yeah. So they, we hung out with a lot of white uh, kids that were involved in like the, the gang thing also. So that's definitely like one thing that I want to share that I want to deconstruct that idea yeah. also, because there was more diversity at the time. You know, there was some yeah. like Asian, Asian American guys we used to hang out with. Uh, there were some kids that were like uh, that had like Arabic backgrounds that were involved in the gang thing. Uh, so a lot of our friends were white at the time. And uh, that was like, it was like kind of like a punk rock skinhead, like yeah. kind of influence also, you yeah. know, being by the beach, surfing, skating, all of those things were ideas that we grew up with that were not, uh, not available to us. Right. Yeah. So I've always referred to it as also like the influence of affluence, being close to the beaches and being able yeah. to participate in these types of activities gives you kind of like a different edge in like this experiment of America, right? So like being in this world with these white kids, but doing like traditionally gang stuff, but they're also white. It's like, you know, you, we didn't necessarily see them different and they didn't see themselves different either, you know, because they yeah. would always be like, oh, well, I'm, I'm a quarter Mexican or like I'm half Mexican or something like that. So it was just like, we're all just doing very similar things. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, uh, I've talked about this on the show, like a lot of things that people that look and sound like me that they do get classified differently than if somebody else does it. Right. Like I am. And there's more of us here. I'm like, if you guys don't think that we're out doing the same bullshit, <laughs> and causing the kinds of trouble it's just the eyeballs don't get put on us yeah right because it's america right and we could talk all the systemic stuff and i guess that was what like if i get in trouble there's a lot of intervention there's people that are coming in and being like oh we should i like the royal like white dude there's a lot of people coming in and what i have found in the areas that i've lived at throughout my life which have largely been diverse is that there isn't that same kind of intervention there's a lot of police stuff there's a lot of we got to stop this but not a whole lot of like hey, we should do something to like make this better. Yeah, yeah. And I've experienced both sides of that, like being with white friends. <laughs> uh, we sometimes have been let go, you know, during like serious crimes. Yeah, it could be based on that could not be I just speculating. Yeah, you know, but I've been pretty good speculation. Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and sometimes I've been in situations with like just like my Latino friends, where something that seemed very minute you know became a yes. big deal yeah right like an example got getting pulled over in manhattan beach for the car that we were driving at the time just me and a friend the cop pulled us over and said i pulled you over because your music is too loud yeah. and we started laughing because i said look there's no stereo in the car 
Like, what do you, how, how's our music too loud? Like, there's literally no stereo in the car, right? And another example, you know, being with the white friend, uh, he, um, like I said, a gang guy as well, but he was uh, home from boot camp from the Marines and he had dog tags on, uh, but the guy was like seriously like drunk driving and just him and I, I'm in the passenger seat and uh, the cop uh, hit him with the flashlight on the chest and rattled the dog tags and then said, oh, are you, are you in the service? And he said, yeah. And he's like, all right, just clean your act up, you know, get home as quickly as possible. Yeah. And they let us go, you know, without just, yeah. So, I mean, that's just, those are small examples, but you know, those types of things do happen on the streets and yeah, so. I'm assuming. Yeah. I mean, they, yes, everywhere it's America. Right. Like, and I think we're now able to the mainstream conversations are happening more about that than, than they were 20 years ago, right? 30 years ago when we were, I think we're about the same age. Um, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and we're going to get out of high school. We're going to sort of get into the second part of this. So we'll be back okay. in just a second. Okay. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Uh, so when we left, you were sort of, we were in high school. You were heading down a bad path. So as you come to the end of high school, like as you finish high school, like what's your plan? Uh, at the time. Yeah. Uh, you, since I kind of like spoiled the whole like college thing, right? Like I hadn't thought about it anymore. Yeah. I, I didn't have a plan anymore as far as uh, like, I've, I read something once where gang members, they don't make plans to live. They make plans to die. Right. Because uh, you know, they plan funerals and so forth, or they go to prison and you kind of like, you're okay with that option. If it's your option, right? Like you, yeah. you have to accept that as, as kind of like, fatalistic humanism in a way right like that's your choice uh, 
but I didn't want to go that route. So at some point I said, you know what, I, I, I do want to do something else. So I, uh, I really started focusing on like my rap career at the time. And I even took uh, an internship. I started taking some part-time college classes after high school. And I found an internship that was accepting, you know, they, they accepted me uh, on Rodale Drive of all places, no right? Like deep in Beverly Hills. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, let me ask them, like, what's the moment where you're like, yeah, I, I can't do this anymore. Like, I, I have to do something else because there had to be a moment. Yeah, there's a moment. Yeah, for sure. There was a moment. So and this moment is a little it's a little traumatic and it's hard for me to talk about sometimes. But uh, my two closest friends at the time, uh, one who I grew up with since the since uh, middle school, they were arrested and convicted of a homicide of a guy from our own gang who was a shot caller. Uh, He was a federal informant collecting information and about 20 to 30 guys were arrested and convicted on all types of charges because of the uh, intel that he had been collecting, gathering for the past you know, five, 10 years. I don't know how long. Uh, so my two closest friends were the ones that took this guy out. And then after that, on the streets, it was kind of like a ghost town for us. Nobody knew who to trust anymore. And it was like, if that guy was doing it, anybody could be the one doing it. And so since my friends had were arrested in jail fighting this case, you know, I said, you know, I, I, th- th- that's it. This is it. Like, I can't, this is way too much. I can't be in this world anymore. I need to step away. And so at that point, I started going to uh, college, like community college part-time. Uh, did found- you figure all that on, on your own? Like, did you just say, well, I'm just going to apply to community college? Like, because you're out of high school at that point, right? Yeah. Yeah, at that point, I just started doing it on my own. Yeah. And it's it's in a way it started, one, because I wanted to develop better vocabulary to be a better rapper. That was really like philosophically oh, interesting. Yeah. I had done it at first. But then I started liking the classes and I started enjoying certain subjects. And I said, yeah, maybe I could do this. You know, maybe this could be something. I started thinking about who I would have been as a kid had I not gone in that direction. And I started remembering all these teachers that had influenced me to go to college to study journalism and so forth. And so it was still like, I still want to be a rapper. I still want to be in the music world. And I, I took an internship at BMG music distribution. Oh yeah. uh, You know, because some of my favorite rappers were on a a label called loud records, but that was, and they were being distributed by BMG. So I could go to all the album release parties and <laughs> yeah. get a bunch of like posters and CDs yeah. and stuff like that, you know? So I started getting involved in that world and uh, being going in that direction. Um, and I felt like it was um, the friend that went to prison. He was one of my rapping partners. I had a few other rapping partners. They started having kids, uh, being kind of busy, you know, it seemed like a burden to them you know, to get involved in this, uh, to continue, like to be a professional rapper, if that was going to be the option for us. So I just dropped out because of their uh, resistance, or just because they didn't have the passion and energy that I did to pursue that. So I said, I'm going to go to college full time. Uh, That's it. Like, I'm just going to go full time. I had taken a political science class. And I said, this is it. Like, this is what I want to do. This is this is my calling. And so 
That's what do I did. You, do you think back on that, like that feeling? Because you've described that feeling too when you found the gang, right? Like this is like that. There has been a search in your life for that. Uh, great way of uh, putting that. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it before, but yeah, maybe it's like you're always looking for a place. And I'll just back up a little bit. Even uh, like where I live now, my wife and I have lived in about thirteen to fifteen different places. Yeah. In the during the trajectory of our marriage. And I never thought that I would find my home in Rancho Palos Verdes. I, you know, we searched in different places, different communities, lived in different areas. And of all places, you know, the place that I was like, there's just no way that I'm going to live in this type of environment. Uh, it's been the complete antithesis of what I thought living here. And, you know, even like the first couple of weeks of us moving over here, you know, buying our house here, uh, neighbors, gave us avocados, lemons, oranges, came to introduce themselves, giving us their phone numbers. And I was really taken aback, like, wow, this is really not what I expected, you know, in this community. And that's, that's my shallowness of judging people and communities without knowing, like, much about them. Yeah, so, and I am convinced that the state of life is, is the search for home is the search for a place where you feel like you have a voice and you can just take off your coat, whatever the coat that you're wearing out in the world and just be who you are. I like that. Yeah. And yeah. you have like in ways you have described that, right? You didn't really have it at home with your dad and then you found it at writing and then you found it with the, with the gangs and then you found it in college. Like there has been this search, right? Like, because you clearly have a voice. Like you clearly have a thing you want to say. We've just met, but I've been around enough writers to know like, oh yeah, you have a, it's just been trying to get to that point where you could do it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because when I, when I started rapping, I kept saying, I remember like, I remember this part of my life where I always said, I have something to say. Yeah. People need to listen to it. And in those rapping days, a lot of my rapping colleagues didn't like what I was doing because at that point, young age, I was talking about global warming. You know, <laughs> I had already been talking about that. And they said, how come you don't write about hood stuff and gang stuff? And I said, because I'm interested in global warming and like doomsday and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. So like my, my raps went in that direction. That's why political science seemed like a better fit because yeah. it was like, you know, you started to analyze ideas, you know, right? you, you know, you could write philosophically about it. You read philosophers, you know, that had tackled certain uh, bigger, like world concerns, and so you saw, okay, the the way to do it is the way that other historic other people have historically done yeah. it, right? So you you know you take a body of work or you take a subject, and you know you decide which medium to approach it with, whether it's like in, in what I do now, like documentary, you know, essay, yeah. novel you know, screenplay, yeah. whatever. So like you just, whatever the subject matter is, like as a, as a creative person, as a writer, as an artist, like my part of my uh, process is which medium is better suited yeah. for this topic. I'm always amazed by people like you that can write it. I, I do nonfiction and I, I'm a writer and I can do some script stuff like audio script stuff, but I'm always amazed by people that can do it visually who can do it on the page, who can do it on the stage, who are able to move through those mediums because that's I, people that aren't writers don't understand. That's a fucking skill. 
Like what you have is a massive skill. Like most writers are good at one, maybe two things. Like, you know that, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> like you got, you got some skills that the rest of us are like, fuck you. God, I hate that. <laughs> I'll take that as a very big compliment. So. Yeah, man. And so did you, I just, I, this is a total aside. Did you grow up listening to like KRS-One and Boogie Down Productions? Like just listening to what you're saying, like that's literally what KRS-One did. Yeah, I, I did. And then I also want to add that the biggest influence on my kind of creativity was like the British pop stuff. Really? So I was more into that, you know, in elementary school, I was into the Pet Shop Boys, New Order, uh, <laughs> those like new wave bands. Yeah. And then That's the, sort of, the, yeah. rap, the rap stuff hadn't even started yet. That didn't start till like 88. It was like yeah. the gangster rap came in. But previous to that, you know, we were listening to the British new wave stuff. That's and, really interesting. You know, so like, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, because like I, like I listened to that stuff, but like my stuff that I listened to and I got to befriend him later on was Chuck D and Public Enemy, which was like, and, and then KRS-One, who I got to meet when I was in college, who came and talked and like talked about like edutainment. That was the album that was out when he was doing his sort of tour about like philosophical rapping, like like talking about like topics and not just doing this other stuff. And like that was sort of my that was my go to stuff growing up. Um, sort of in that transition time of like listening because that was where storytelling was right yeah. like rocket sort of turned less storytelling from the 70s and became this sort of synth music power pop stuff and rap was a place where stories were being told and so right. i think i gravitated into that because i'm like oh yeah like i yeah slick rick i get i get that like i get it like i understand what's happening there yeah, yeah. In, in my case, it would have been uh, for the rap. It was NWA, you know, straight yeah. out of Compton because I mean, they were sure. telling stories. And then it was the Wu-Tang Clan. I mean, uh, because yeah. it was like, you the know, Wu-Tang. Right, exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's nothing else to say, right? Yeah. And, and and when when my friends and I started rapping, <laughs> I, I was doing the same thing. I was collecting all these different voices, you know, because I yeah. like Wu-Tang's approach to it. So I had like six, seven rappers at a time collaborating on a song that I had kind of come up with. I would come up with the hooks and then, you know, have producer and so forth coming up with the beats. And people that didn't really know what we were doing would often call us the Mexican Wu-Tang. They're like, oh, you guys are like the Mexican like Wu-Tang gangsters. And we're like, that's the biggest compliment. So yeah. thank you very much. Yeah, like, I will take that. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I was going for. <laughs> So, it's yeah. one of those things in life. I'm like, if you don't like kids, if you don't like dogs, and if you don't like Wu Tang, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> right. I'm gonna use that one. Yeah, it's um, that's sort of my benchmark for like where we are in our right, trust right. relationship. <laughs> so you're doing the music thing, you're doing the college thing. Like, what is the, when you finish college? Like, is there a transition? Like, do you start to say like, oh, there's a like I can do something beyond music. Like this writing, music is part of the writing, but there's other stuff uh yeah i had at that point i had uh when i went to college full-time i abandoned the music thing really uh yeah because my my like i said my closest friend went to prison oh uh, and then the other guys started having kids and not really participating in like uh, the the music as much as i wanted them to so i said right, i'm gonna go full-time and just focus on on uh, i liked essay writing at the time right so like all the nonfiction stuff and then when I studied political science, I started thinking about my experiences in the gang yeah. during 
what we had over here known as a peace treaty. There was a peace treaty uh, between the street gangs and a lot of things that happened during the peace treaty were very political. I just didn't know it at the time. When I started studying political science, I looked back on the gang life and realized how politicized we were collecting taxes, having meetings, different uh, like cliques were considered like political parties. And it all kind of made sense. And I started making this juxtaposition between street gang culture and political organizations. And, and so as I was finishing college, that's where I came up with my first like nonfiction philosophical approach. And I wrote this, my first book called Urban Politics, yeah. The Political Culture of Sur Trece Gangs. And it's very, very like heavily influenced by uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Thomas Hobbes. You know, so, so just like, some light reading that you did. Light reading, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bathroom reading, summer reading. Yeah, right? like I got on the beach summer and... vacation and yeah. uh, in a resort. You know, take urban politics with you. Yeah, but it also, I mean, like coming out of what we know happened in the '60s, right? And with the Black Panthers and like with all of that, like that, it makes sense, right? Like, so when you say politicized, do you mean that you were? the gangs were operating as political organizations or in opposition to the politics of America or yes? I, I, it's a reflection, you know, so I've always yeah. like mentioned that the way that the gangs behaved is a reflection of what America was doing. We just don't know that. Yeah. You know, we just didn't know that uh, a collective consciousness of being in a constant state of war is a reflection of, America being in a constant state of war. Yeah. So it was like looking for an enemy or wanting, or there always has to be an enemy. So at the time of this peace treaty, the gangs that were traditionally our enemies were no longer our enemies, but we still needed an enemy. So like the bigger, what I refer to as the prison Congress said, all your enemies are now every black gang around you. Mm -hmm. So whether you were enemies or not, those are your new enemies. And your own, like the enemies that look like you traditionally are no longer your enemy. Right. And this, I mean, that just gets back to like the feudalist beginnings of this country, right? Like the slavery happened because when they brought over the white indentured servants, they walked off the plantation and they couldn't find them. So they were like, well, we need somebody that looks different. That is, this is a very brief summation of how the fucking yeah. Gold Coast and shit happened. But it was essentially that. And then it's like, post-slavery i mean put, put it in quotes post-slavery happens like this is what they did right they pitted poor white people against poor black people and poor brown people like that's been the that's been america's mo from day yeah. one yeah and, and and it's easy to it was easier i would say to instill that kind of hatred right because it was like they just these people are not like us they yeah. don't you know they're they don't look like us they don't act like us and so that's it like this is this these are your this is your new enemy. It's baked into America. I mean, it's baked into this country. It may be baked into the world. I don't know. But it's baked in here. I think. Yeah, I think so, too. And also, I mean, in traditionally, like in the Latino culture, you know, is historically also been a very racist culture, you know, colorist culture. So it was it's not it's not far fetched, you know, to see how this can be an easy transition. Yeah. I mean, I'm of the belief that like that is just sort of kind of the, the it's the fear state of humanity. I think no matter where you go, there is going to be that people are always distrustful of 
I think it's called the dark forest, right? Like if you're in the dark forest, what you don't want to do is put a light on because you've told every predator where you are. So right, everybody right. just kind of lurks around in the dark forest, right? Looking right. for a light to attack and everybody attacks the light. Like that seems to be sort of the fear-based state of humanity. Okay, I see that. Yeah. So like when I hear that, I'm like, yeah, that it, of course it's easy to convince people because we're in a dark forest. Right, right, right. You know, yeah. like that's what yeah. we're doing. So you go, you go to college. You write the first book. Like, do you, what? Do you, are you in college when you write the book? Because it's it's not even ten years old, and you're not that old. Yeah, I was still in college when I wrote <laughs> it, and then uh, that's crazy. I, do you understand I, how crazy that is? I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know because at the time it was like this is just it would just seem normal to me. Yeah, you know, it just seemed normal. Uh, but I guess I would say yes, it's crazy because I'm just gonna jump up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, when before I started graduate school, I had already started working on my dissertation and I had turned in a sample right when I started graduate school. And the lady said, what are you doing? She said, you're doing everything backwards. She's like, why would you do a dissertation if you just started graduate school? And I said, because I'm already getting ready for the Ph.D. And she said, how much have you written? And I had already written like 250 pages of like this dark Los Angeles history with with all these, uh, with the bibliography, with all the references. And she said, wow, like, I don't even know where you get the time to do this or why you would even torture yourself doing this, but you need to stop and get credit for something like this. Right. right? Like, so, <laughs> so I said, all right, fine. So like I had this story called the dark metropolis uh, about Los Angeles's like dark history, yeah, politics, like gangs, the arts, a bunch of stuff. And so I, I just kind of, it's on hold right now, but I, I have written about 250 pages of it that's crazy that's but i mean clearly they're going to accept you into the program because they're like i mean yeah sure come on in you're going to be the you're, easiest you're we have yeah <laughs> i mean maybe also the hardest because you're smart and you've done a lot of stuff but like yeah he's going to do the work <laughs> <laughs> we ain't worried about that right, so the right. book comes out and then because that has to be another moment when the book comes out where you're like okay like i guess this is what i'm doing now like art yeah, is the yeah. thing I can do. Yeah. And it was the same thing as I had mentioned to you before, which you also identified. It was like, I found something, right. It was like yeah. this attention. People were like really excited about this. Right. I had a, a big book launch event. I even got a tattoo done while signing books. That's awesome. uh, right. I was like, I never seen anybody do that before. So I'm just going to get a tattoo on my wrist. Right. Which is like this tattoo of the bracelet that I have. Nice. And I'm a left, I'm left-handed, so I was signing books with the other hand while getting a tattoo. <laughs> and there's bands playing in the background, and it just seemed like a cool, fun thing to do. Uh, but it also I, brings your world together, right? Like, yeah, it did. that. I mean, again, looking if if we just make up a narrative here, which is like looking to find a place. It's like doesn't matter if anybody's ever done that before. That's you. And so this yeah. is what I'm doing. And if you don't like it, don't fuck come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, yeah. I love how you're putting all this in perspective because you know, maybe I, I guess I haven't, I hadn't seen it that way, but it all, it did bring everything into like the same kind of environment, right? It was like this book that I wrote about gangs and politics. Uh, I was getting a tattoo because I'm in the arts, right? So like, love tattoo art also, and there were all these like punkish garage bands playing, yeah, you know, supporting my event. So it was like all these things that I grew up with finding like the community uh, surrounding myself with like-minded people and everybody enjoying like this event 
and all its like aspects and things that were involved there. It was like, yeah, this is definitely like where I'm supposed to be. Yeah, that's the thing, man. And like, we don't even know. I say we, I wasn't there, but like, you don't even know if like everybody was like-minded, but the fact is you created a world into which they could come, right? Like, and like, as a writer, as a storyteller, as an artist, like, is there anything better than that? Right, right. You know, you created that space around a thing that you did and then people can come to that. Right. That's how we change the world. I, I hope, I think. I think so. Yeah. I, think <laughs> yeah. So. I don't know another way. Right. right. <laughs> nobody's elected me to do shit. <laughs> me neither. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll be in the unelected party. Right, so right, right. that book comes out like, what are the next steps then? Like what, like what do you, because at that point, I'm guessing your vision has changed. Like you're out of school and you're like, okay, now what um, am I going to, I've gotten here. Like that's the jumping point. Yeah, at that point, I, I, I was I was considering uh, getting a master's in urban planning because it You're was a fascinating, like, dude. <laughs> thanks. Uh, it was like the next step because of my uh, I I at the time I was reading a lot of Russian novels like that's that's really like my influence. <laughs> Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, uh, Gogol, Gorky. Oh, yeah. like, this is all the stuff that I was reading and in their stories there's always like bureaucrats like that's the way i look at it it's like a bunch of people working in the civil service these bureaucrats you know and i say well, i want to be a bureaucrat like i just want to be in the civil service like doing boring work you're the only person i've ever talked to that's like i read dostoevsky and wanted to be a middle manager i, I did I, <laughs> I promise that's exactly what i wanted to do that's like that was my life i said i'm gonna work oh, in the i fucking school. love you you know thanks <laughs> But but it also makes sense if you think about it, right? Like it growing up in the gang world, not having any stability. I wanted stability. I yeah. wanted benefits. I wanted to work for the government where you don't get fired unless you do something like really like crazy, right? Yeah. So like civil service, yeah. Middle management, yes. Like benefits for life, yeah. Yes, this is exactly what I want to do. But also political science and urban planning, for those who don't know, go together, right? Like America wasn't constructed accidentally. There's a lot of politics into the how things are put together in our cities. Yes. Right. So that I, I'm laughing, but like it also makes sense that that would be the next place that you would go. How am I going to construct the home for everybody? Yeah. 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 <laughs> how can I be involved in like beautifying a city and, you know, bringing trees in and that sort of thing? Yeah. You and know, like, it all just yeah. seemed it all just seemed right for me. And that was like the beginning of gentrification in Los Angeles in a way, like at, yeah. at least like me studying it and learning about it. So that was like, if I can help uh, solve some of these issues through being an urban planner, you know, that's the best route for me to take. Yeah. And just being a voice in the room, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, and- it's like, I have opinions about that. Like, I've grown up in these kinds of communities yeah. that have experienced, like, advanced social disorganization. You know, how I know what we need in those communities, right? Like, I knew what I needed as a kid to help me, like, steer me away from like the, the, the stuff that I got involved in. Uh, and then all of a sudden I had the idea, like, I'm going to go live abroad instead. Of course you did. So we moved, I, at the time I was, uh, I had just met my, my wife. Right. So she was my girlfriend at the time and we decided to go move abroad and be teachers, you know, doing like the teaching English as a second language. Uh, we started in South America in Chile and the goal was to travel throughout South America, 
and then like do it in Latin America and other parts like Mexico, which we did for two years. And then eventually like we would end up in Europe. So uh, we did the teaching abroad thing for three years. Then my wife, then I got a job offer in Italy oh, and wow. my wife, yeah, my wife gave me the ultimatum then. She said, uh, yeah, I'm not going, like, I want to go back home. I want to <laughs> get into the PhD program. I want to start my own business. I miss my family. I really can't keep following you around doing like these like crazy artistic things, you know, that the world might see as crazy and artistic. Yeah. I just, I just, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of living abroad. Like I want to go home. And so she said, you can go all you want, but like, I'm not going with you. Yeah. We know how this story ends. Right. So yeah. came back home. Yeah. And she's like, okay. Since you're in a nice house in Los yeah. Angeles, we know how that ended. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the route that we took, came back home, uh, got into two urban planning master's programs and then decided that it was no longer what I wanted to do after living abroad for a few years, after like, not thinking about these things on a regular basis, I felt like my voice could be better served just doing all the creative stuff mm -hmm. that I have been wanting to do or that this path had been leading me down. Yeah, from the beginning, right? We go back yeah. to like from the beginning. Exactly. You gave yourself permission to actually do the thing that you do. It was I. I it was very difficult for me yeah. to make that decision. My My wife actually, in a way, made it for me. Because when I got into this program, this urban planning program, uh, I was a little depressed. And she said, wow, you got into this program that you've been talking about for years and yeah, you're, you're depressed? Yeah. Like, what's going on here? And she said, you never really, really wanted to do that. But you have been thinking that you need the stability uh, because you've never had it. Yeah. Right? And she said, let me worry about the stability. I'm the one that has like the practical career and job with benefits, she said, and you give yourself the permission to do what you love and what you've always, what you've always been meant to do. So then when I, that's when I applied to the MFA programs and I got into, uh, you know, two programs that I really wanted to do. And so that was the beginning of like uh, this story that we're yeah. that coming out on tomorrow, that novel, same thing like before. I had thought about that novel before I even joined the MFA program. And I said, this is what I'm going to write as my thesis. I'm going to write a story about gentrification that yeah. looks like Albert Camus' The Plague, because people have been talking about gentrification as a plague, as a disease, as something that has been spread to community to community, like a virus. I said, so I will do it in his footsteps and his, in a way, like nodding to Camus, uh, because of his influence on like my reading and my writing. That's amazing. Yeah. And so, I mean, what a gift that your wife recognized that saw it and said that to you. Yes, for that, sure. That's a gift, man. Like yeah. that's a gift because it, I know I had a conversation with my father right before he passed away because he, he didn't want me to go to writing school. My sister got a degree in concert piano like she did that she went to conservatory and he told her do that as long as you want and then when you're finished we'll help you get a job and he told me when i went to college get a job and he said <laughs> i he's like if i could go back and change anything i would change that 
I should have told you to also do what you wanted. And so to get to that point where you're like, I get to do the thing that my heart wants to do. Brother, that's a gift, man. It is. Yeah, definitely. Do you like have like as this book's coming out, the displaced is coming out, knowing the journey, knowing, I mean, you've done other stuff. You have, you've done film stuff, like all that. So you just sit back and go, it took me a long time to get here, but here's, this is it. Like I got here. Or is there um, more stuff? Do you think like, do you think not that you won't write more, but that you're going to go somewhere else artistically? For sure. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Like there's always something else. I think if uh, I've read before like quotes or something like that, like if you feel like this is the end or you've you know finally made it, <laughs> then right then then you're going to become complacent yeah uh and you'll just you know maybe stagnant right like if you feel like this is the best that you have to offer and uh if you say to yourself this is just the beginning yeah then there's always there's always more to come yeah right so there's there's more to come uh and so i yeah i there's a there's a pilot that i wrote for a tv series oh, that's that great. that i in my opinion, it's like, this is my masterpiece. Like, this, <laughs> this needs to be out there. People need to watch this, this TV series, right? So that's, that's something that... That's next. I've already finished it. It's been reviewed. Like, it's been phenomenal. Like, there's been a lot of good, uh, positive feedback uh, for this TV series. So now I just got to, like everything else, you got to put the pieces together yeah. and try to put people try to get people interested in it so that it can, it can come to fruition. Yeah. So film yeah, and TV, the, what I know about that is it's not like book, like books are hard to do, but film and TV is like a whole slope of like, everybody may love it. And one thing falls of like, until it's actually on TV or the movies, my friends always tell me like, it's not done until you actually see it. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. It ain't like a book that's bought 18 months ahead of time. Like, yeah, we'll fucking see. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, man, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, I appreciate you spending an hour with me. You are just smart and funny and engaging. And I just, I'm so happy that I got to have this conversation with you. And I am super excited to read The Displaced now, just knowing all that backstory that I'm sure is not in here, right? I always tell people, everything we write is both from our life and not from our life. So yeah. like, you know, right. like I ain't reading this thinking I know you, but like now that I know the story, I'm like, I bet this is going to land a little different. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, you have a good day. And uh, when the TV pilot comes out and the next stuff comes out, I hope we can do this again. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I had a good time. It was really great meeting you as well. And uh, I really appreciated how comfortable you made me feel. So, <laughs> That's great. Thank brother. You. Well, there you have it. That was Rodrigo Rivera Debra. His book is The Displaced. It's out now. Just had the launch party like a week ago. Uh, I, I'm i in my feels about this, man. Um, it's such a fun conversation. He's so interesting. I try very hard not to fall into the trope of pain as an artist's way through things. Or the hard story lifting people up because I don't fundamentally believe that because these are people's lives, right? We all go through stuff and those things shape us, but they don't define us. 
The things that happen to us shape us, but they don't define us. And I just think it's so interesting. And, and you heard that theme through the show of us talking about finding your place and finding your home and finding your voice. And again, if you've listened to the show, you've heard that echoed 200 something times. It's what we all do. And I'm always very happy when people share it. And I'm just because of my background and who I am, I'm always happy when men share that with me because it's really important for us to talk about those kinds of things um, in a way that neither glorifies the past and the things that have happened nor uses that as a springboard as like, well, this is what propelled me to this other thing. And goddamn, Rodrigo is a storyteller, man, and he's smart. And he was talking about things that I literally had to go. I mean, I'm no Dostoevsky, but like I was, he used words I had to go look up, man. I love that. I love it. And I hope you did too. I just, it was a fun interview. Uh, before we get out of here, you know, I'm always asking you to do a couple things for us. Tell your friends about this program, spread it around the internet and leave us a review over at Apple podcasts or the writer's jam Facebook page. As I told you briefly, we are part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. There's 12 whole shows, 11 other ones besides mine, and a whole-ass Patreon set of shows. Our flagship is Mother May I Sleep With Podcast with our host and Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly Macklear. So you should go check all those out. Don't forget, we have three programs on this channel. The Jam is out every Wednesday. That's what you just listened to. And then the after party and jam sessions will be out on Mondays. And the after parties are weird ass storytelling Q&A show. And jam sessions is our nonfiction sort of deep dive into interesting topics that are impacting our world. Surest way not to miss any of those. You don't even have to remember the names of the program. Just get subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts. That's all I'm asking you to do. And remember, in between all that, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, See you all around the internet. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.